Today on episode number 397 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Audrey Waters is back to talk about teaching machines. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Audrey Waters describes herself on her website as an education writer, an independent scholar, a serial dropout, a rabble rouser, and Ed Tex Cassandra. She continues and, sh- and describes about herself, I love science fiction, tattoos, and some days computer technologies. I loathe mushy foods and romantic comedies. I'm not ashamed to admit I like ABBA and dislike Tolkien. I'm sometimes ashamed to admit I've not finished Ulysses, and I've never even started Infinite Jest. I prefer cake to pie, unless we're talking pastry projectiles. I pick fights on the internet, although I'm not sure if she does that as much anymore. (laughs) Uh, She's been maybe putting that in a backseat. Who knows? Who knows? I'm a high school dropout and a PhD dropout. I have a master's degree in folklore and was once considered uh, the academic expert on political pie throwing. I was, I am a widow. I was, I am a mom. I have a hard stare that I like to imagine is much like Paddington Bears and a smirk much like the Cheshire Cats. I am not afraid. R.J. Waters, welcome back to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I know it's such an expression, but it has been a minute (laughs) since the last time we talked. One thing that has happened of many, and I'm sure we're going to get back into a lot of that, but I follow your work. And one thing I know that happened was you had a new dog come into your life. And I thought we'd start with Poppy. Could you tell us about Poppy? This It's so funny. You know, he, I mean, so many people I think have adopted, have adopted dogs during the pandemic. It was perfect. Before the pandemic, Ken and I, we, we couldn't have, I mean, we traveled all the time, but we're home. (laughs) We're home all the time now. And so we did what many people do. We turned to a rescue and we got a dog. And it's actually was for a time there quite challenging to get a dog. I mean, everybody was, was doing it, but yes, we ended up with Poppy, who's a Rottweiler German shepherd mix and she's great. And it was hilarious to actually be putting the final touches on the book, which has a lot to do with behaviorism. I'm working with my dog using Skinner's tactics of operant conditioning in order to reinforce her positive behavior and train her uh, and train her. So here, you know, here we are, this sort of like real, this really this tension between like my professional and my personal life playing out in this wonderful dog that we adopted. We had dogs all the time growing up. And it's one of those things that as a family, you don't really realize it's unusual until you get a little bit of perspective. Each one of us had our own dog. So four dogs in the house and five cats in the house most of the time growing up. They really, I mean, people say they're members of your family and then they don't believe you. But 
what I talk to my mom a lot because my mom and my dog, they tr- still train their dogs today and they do it for search and rescue. So scent dogs, whether it's area search or scent specific, you know, smell this sweater and go find this this lost person. And so we talk a lot about what's changed about dog training. So because when we were little, there was a lot of I, we did obedience training when I was little. I can vividly remember this. And you yank the dog to get them to heal by your side. And one time my dog, she I mean, she had been trained properly, but she got a sticker or a burr into her inner ear. We, of course, didn't know that at the time, but she behaved in an unusual way, which is to say she left the competition ring. You know, it's it's. It's um, wow, yeah. blocked off. She goes and she jumps up <laughs> into a stranger's lap and lays down. And the judge got so mad at me and is chastising me and chastising my mom saying, you haven't trained this dog right. You haven't trained this dog right. And, you know, of course, when you find out later, like anyway, so there's so much to unpack here as far as I, I want to know from you. Did you have that kind of experience, like not just Skinner, but also positive reinforcement, but also negative reinforcement. Did stuff change for you with Poppy? It was so interesting. And, and, and to talk to, we got a, we had a dog trainer. There were many, there were so many elements that were interesting to me. One of them, I think was this idea of you can learn anything online now, of course, that's (laughs) right. This is this promise we always hear and that there's tons of free dog training content on the internet. Why on earth would you pay for a trainer? (laughs) So we heard that a lot, you know, from neighbors, from people in our apartment building that were like, oh, ironically, one of them actually works for an online education company that does video training. He was like, I would never pay for a dog trainer. Like, well, your your dog's kind of a jerk. So maybe, maybe you should. But it was really interesting to talk with our dog trainer about this and her belief in positive versus aversive training. And for me, you know, too, this idea of having a dog that people see as a Rottweiler, and there's a lot, I think, of cultural assessment, cultural judgment around the Rottweiler breed. I live in Oakland. And so a lot of people are pretty fearful of Rottweilers. I mean, I think not just in Oakland, but elsewhere, but there's an association, I think, of the breed with with gangs, for example, and with violence. And so I wanted Poppy to have good behavior. But this this idea of should you use aversive um, aversive training as well, that there's debates among some of the other dog owners in our building who Poppy wears a prong collar, for example, um, and they're like, oh, that just seems so mean. And yeah, this idea of like, should it be positive? Should it only be positive? Should Poppy only get rewards? Or does she need some sort of more aversive training as well? So it's, and yeah, there, I mean, there's just so many elements of working with the dog and thinking about how people respond to training their dog or <laughs> not, not training their dog as the case may be, that really, I think, shed an interesting light on the kinds of things that we think we know about teaching and learning. And that we think we know about teaching and learning with technology as well. So I was always having these sort of aha moments um, and then really deeply reflecting on what it uh, on what it meant for for my relationship with my dog. Yeah. Yeah. So many parallels to our teaching and to students and all of that. Well, Poppy is not the only animal we're going to be talking about today. What can you tell us about how pigeons have been involved in your life? (laughs) I love pigeons. They are a bird, I think, that people 
particularly in America, not everywhere, but particularly in the U.S., I think that there's a real negative connotation with pigeons. They're seen as dirty. They're associated with disease, even though they are not. They probably, you know, they don't they don't carry diseases. But I think that that's that's the idea uh, that a lot of people have. And they're seen as being a pest. Pigeons are fascinating, I think, because they are actually a feral domesticated bird. The pigeons that we have in North America aren't wild pigeons. They were brought over um, in the 18th century by uh, French for the same reasons that people raised pigeons and doves in Europe, which was for for food, for messaging, um, and for fuel, for for pigeon poop. And they went feral. And that's what fills our cities today. Pigeons um, live in rocks, uh, in cliffs, and so they love cities. They are perfectly designed for cities, but they're fascinating, of course, because they are eminently trainable, B.F. Skinner found. And I think pigeons are so closely associated with Skinner and Skinner's work on developing operant conditioning um, that I, I love the idea of this what like this wild, feral, domesticated creature coming to turn, you know, coming face to face with the technology of psychology, the technology of education and sort of resisting or complying and what and what that what that looks like in terms of the history of science. How were pigeons involved then in some of the early work trying to come up with what are called teaching machines? uh, Skinner first worked with rats initially. And I think that, you know, it's funny, the history of education technology and the history of animal behavior are very deeply intertwined. The history of education psychology, a lot of early educational psychologists worked on animal behavior, right? So Edward Thorndike, who was a professor at Columbia University, um, he worked with mice and rats. He would time how long it took them to navigate their way out of a maze and that he would graph that and that became the learning curve. And so a lot of the things that we talk about rather casually in terms of how we assess, how we um, monitor um, and judge people's learning is, are actually in, come from this longer history of, of animal, not so much human behavior. Skinner initially worked with rats as well. And when he was a graduate student, he built a device his colleagues dubbed the Skinner box in which he would um, train the animal with rewards in order to do certain tasks. So with the pigeons, he, he likes working with pigeons. Eventually um, he would train them to do things like play ping pong or um, they, there was even a time in world war II when they were working on pigeons to, <laughs> as a, as a way to guide missiles in order to sort of peck at peck at a, at a target in order to, to guide a missile on track. Never actually, we never actually fully developed the pigeon guided missile, but the U.S. military was interested in it for some time. And so, you know, Skinner was really working on this idea of operant conditioning, right? This idea that you can give rewards, time-based rewards in order to manipulate behavior. And for Skinner, behavior was learning. You could judge whether or not someone learned by their behavior, not just physically. We think about this in terms of physically when we think about pigeons, but he actually meant intellectually as well. For for Skinner, you couldn't see inside the mind, all you could see was behavior. And so really his early ideas of how we would assess learning and how we would train people, how we would teach and train people were through the same mechanisms that he had developed for 
for birds, for pigeons. And that was then mapped onto how we would, of course, train children. We know of your fondness for animals, or if we didn't before this conversation, we're starting to get a sense of that. And I know from reading so much of your work, just your love of people that are special to you in your life. And um, there is one type of a person or maybe a an aspect of people that you don't love that does bring out some um, healthy questioning on your part. And that is people that try to act like they've just invented something new. And it kind of cracks me up because my personality, I'm the opposite. I never think I come up with anything unique, you know, all of this. But um, so I want to I want to just invite you to share. There's a specific example that you give early in the book from Saul Khan. And I just went and looked this morning. So we're talking today, January the 12th at 1.36 p.m. And as of us coming on this video from him, a TED Talk in March of 2011 was when it first came out, has been watched 5 million 977 times, uh, 965 times. Sorry, I didn't say that very well, but um, you say in the book, I just love this. There's at least one problem with the way Khan tells it. The history is all wrong. And I know if I just asked you the question, what did he get wrong? We would be done, you know, three months from now. But just what are some aspects of what he gets wrong in this talk? And what is that emblematic of? So I think he's part of, he is just one example of a lot of people and a lot of really powerful people, let's just say secretaries of education in the United States also peddle these narratives about school, about the history of school. For example, that schools haven't changed in hundreds of years. My argument is that schools have changed all, schools change all the time. I mean, there have been policy changes, practical changes, demographic changes, the way in which we teach has changed, the way in which schools are built has changed, who's in the classroom, the subjects have changed. But, you know, Khan and others like to argue that nothing has changed in hundreds of years. We're still doing things the way that we did, you know, back when Horace Mann went to Prussia and took from the Prussians this idea of public education. Nothing's changed until they came along and invented this idea of personalized learning that comes with computer-based education. And it's not even correct in terms of the, the sort of this idea that computer-based education is recent. I mean, we can trace computer-based education back to the first computers. I mean, one of the sites in which computing was developed was at the university Right. And so universities have been working with how do we use these devices for teaching and learning since we first had computing, but even longer than that. And that's what the book really talks about is we've had this idea that machines could be used to personalize teaching, personalized learning for at least 100 years. And so this notion that all of a sudden Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, Silicon Valley executives, all of a sudden came up with this brilliant idea that no one had ever thought about before, really irks, it irks me <laughs> to no end. And they get a lot of, they get a lot of attention for it. I can remember that. So the first order that things came in is we had children and they started to go to school. And I remember speaking of things changing, I remember just how vastly different teaching was for them than it was for me, what I can remember, what little I can remember. But then even also just, I thought these teachers are incredible. 
And I would hear a little bit because my background is not in K through 12. So I'd hear a little bit. I'd hear personalized learning. And even now, as they've continued on, those words get used to mean very different things. And so the idea that these teachers can come and they're able to help students. I mean, it's really pretty marvelous, the, the rare occasion I've gotten to watch it. I mean, it's just, it's really incredible. So I think at first when I heard you and others criticizing personalized learning, I kind of maybe a tiny bit got my haunches up of like, wait, but this seems like a really good thing. So I'd love to have you share a little bit more. Like, you're not criticizing teachers who are able to use both art and science to to do this but like you're you have a specific aspect of what we call personalized learning that is not actually personalized <laughs> at all so yeah. could you distinguish for us how the this phrase gets used differently I think that's so key and I would say that you know particularly as Americans we are big into personalization right like the whole idea of individualism is so deeply intertwined with what we believe fundamentally as Americans. Like it is about me, <laughs> me, 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 me. And in some ways that makes an institution like public schooling really run counter because public schooling is an institution for the masses, right? And we have this, again, it's part of this narrative that Saul Khan and others peddle that schooling is sort of this mass education and that everybody learns the same thing at the same time and we're moved through without any choice, without any kind of um, say in what or how or when we learn things. And there, I mean, there's a certain amount of truth to some of that. I mean, we, you know, we don't as individual fourth graders, for example, get to decide what the curriculum looks like. People in, the, in, the, you know, in, in each individual state have decided what the curriculum looks like. And so, but the idea of personalization, I think does really appeal to us. This idea that school should really speak to me. Um, I shouldn't sort of have to do the same thing that other people do because I have different skills. I have different interests. And so I do think that it really sounds like a great idea. I don't think that what's, what gets talked about in terms of personalization is necessarily the idea that because I'm, again, we'll say fourth grade, I'm a fourth grader, who's really into, I'll pick up a different bird, penguins. If you're a fourth grader that's really into penguins, it's not like personalized learning helps you down the path to become an ornithologist or an expert an expert on even climate change on how, you know, how the, how the global climate warming is changing what the pe penguins environment looks like. That's not what personalized learning is, even though that's what maybe I think some people think it is. It really is an algorithmic way of presenting information to students based on a, an incredible amount of data collection about what students are doing and data analysis. Um, it's really just an algorithmic way of presenting the curriculum that's already in place to students. And so it's not as though it says, hey, you seem to be interested in penguins and you seem to be interested in the cello and we're going to really personalize your experience through K through 12 to sort of enhance enhance your curio that curiosity. It's actually, we're going to schedule you to do X, Y, or Z worksheet today, because according to the score you got on the worksheet yesterday, we think you have a 76% mastery of, you know, your four times tables. And we'd like you to be on an 88% mastery before we move you on to the five times tables. That's personalized learning. Would you just help us a little bit describe so what this an early teaching machine looked like 
in terms of what they called and still today call then the personalization, how many pages, like how did it work from a mechanistic way to deliver these um, algorithms? Yeah, I will say then this was, this is a dangerous rabbit hole that I don't actually recommend anyone going down, but on eBay, you can find all sorts of old devices. And when I was working on the book, I decided that I needed to get my hands on a teaching machine. I wanted to actually experience, have some experience going through what they called at the time programmed instruction and see what it was like um, so that I could really understand the kinds of experiences and the way in which it worked. I mean, this is sort of like instructional technologist 101, like what, what exactly did, how exactly did it work? Because according to this idea, according to Skinner's ideas in particular, what you wanted to do, and this is going to sound so familiar to people today, you want to break things down into the smallest possible content module. So you want to break it down into the smallest possible idea and present a student with an idea and then if, if you're working from Skinner's model, you want to present them in a way that they only get positive reinforcement. So you want to make it so that they only get answers right when they're quizzed about things because you don't want any aversive stuff. So you want to really make things as small as possible to incrementally move someone through the content, move someone through the ideas. And so I got a device that was made by a company called TMI. Um, which is Teaching Machines Incorporated, but they had a plastic one, a plastic machine that actually was sold door to door. It came with encyclopedias. So encyclopedia salesmen would go door to door. You could buy a set of encyclopedias. They'd throw in, they'd throw in the, the teaching machine for free. I bought a, an intro to electricity module and it is I think about 400 pages, each page probably 10, 20 questions on it, multiple choice or fill in the blank questions that move you very, very, very slowly through an introduction to electricity. Sort of like, so like 20 questions on what is a proton and then 20 more on what is a neutron, just to make sure that you always get it correct as you move through. And I did not make it very far in the intro to electricity course module because it was so, it was so boring. Um, but I think that that's also ex an experience that really resonated with me. It was so familiar to the kinds of things that my niece and nephew talk about with some of the personalized learning software that they use in school today. It's, I think it's exciting. And, and students in the 1950s who would use these teaching machines said the same thing. It was very exciting to be on the cutting edge. You have new devices. For a short amount of time, you're very cool to have the new technology. And then very quickly, you recognize that the new technology is often built on the old technology. And what you're doing is a worksheet. And so my, my niece, for example, is very aware that when she's doing Con assignments from Khan Academy, for example, that they really are just a digital version of a kind of paper-based worksheet. There's nothing, it was exciting for a little while. She lives in Maine, so, and Maine has had one-to-one -one laptop programs for a very long time. But it's, it was exciting for a little while to, to work with the technology, but, but, you know, you quickly recognize that this is rote, this is busy work, and it's, it's certainly not personalized. And I think that that's, you know, that's the experience. It's a very, it's a, the, the stuff from the 1950s, the teaching machines from the 1950s looked a lot like worksheets. There weren't the, actually like the bells and whistle, whistles and flashing animation that there are now. But I think the experience is very much still today. This is a worksheet.
Um, this is a worksheet that gives me my feedback immediately, whether I got it right or wrong, but it's a worksheet. Yeah. And kids, of course, are able to see through even when the bells and whistles are there. <laughs> they're, they're generally, I watch what resonates and what doesn't. Obviously, I have a sample size of two to go off of, but it, it is fascinating to get some perspective on them because we can dress it up, but it is often still driving, as you've said, you know, often still driving from those early ideas about what an education is and what learning is. And speaking of learning and trying to automate that and mechanize that and drill it down to algorithms, there's also some concerns around grading and people trying to decide what grading means and what it what it is and all that. And so I'm going to read from from your book. If the teacher is to take advantage of recent advances in the study of learning, she must have the help of mechanical devices. And then forward a little bit, marking a set of pa papers in arithmetic Yes, 9 and 6 are 15. No, 9 and 7 are not 18, is beneath the dignity of any intelligent person, Skinner asserted. Pressy also thought this type of work was beneath people. And that's the aspect that you say Pressy doesn't get as much press, ironically, as, as the name Skinner does. But they're kind of in the same realm of what does grading mean and is it beneath teachers? What could you tell us about um, what they thought about teachers' role in all of this? Yeah, so it's interesting to me. I mean, I think that the profession of teaching is so is has been is feminized and it has been feminized for quite some time. Uh, Dana Goldstein has a very interesting book called Teacher Wars about the history of te the teaching profession in the U.S. And you can sort of see the ways in which um, the, the, a lot of the assumptions that we make about what the classroom should look like and what the teacher should be doing is very gendered. And interestingly, the invention of the multiple choice test came about in the early 1900s because the, the inventor was concerned that teachers were, female teachers, were too emotional when grading um, their students' work. And so we, ha we had to come up with a way that was the objective, right, so that teachers would not respond emotionally to their students' work, but rather be able to have a more scientific objective way of, of saying yes, right, or wrong, as opposed to, well, I know you tried. <laughs> and so this idea by the time that Pressy and Skinner were working, I think is really, is really interesting. They still would argue that even if we could automate grading, that a teacher's responsibility was still to have this sort of emotional, be the emotional support for students. Again, a very gendered very gendered idea of what we what we think teachers should do. The other side of that that I always think is really interesting, and it comes back to what we were just talking about earlier with the sort of rote work that we expect students to do that we call personalized learning, is that we want to automate these tasks that are dull for teachers to grade, but we don't often talk about or what it means that we're still expecting students to do these kinds of tasks. I mean, if they're if they're too boring and not significant, important enough for teachers to look at, why the heck are we asking students to do this work, right? I mean, and this is something that's been really on my mind a lot during the pandemic, particularly as I've seen schools turn to the kinds of surveillance technologies around proctoring and really adopt a whole suite of, of tools that are interested in automating the assessment and then automating the surveillance of students to prevent cheating. Sort of like, why aren't we thinking more about the kinds of work that we're asking students to do? Why aren't students doing meaningful work? 
why do we think that it's okay to have the kind of tasks that it that a computer could assess, right? If it's something that a computer can assess, that, I mean, that means it's not very sophisticated. I, I know that there are a lot of claims about what AI can do, but really if it's a kind of task that a computer can assess, it's probably a task that, task that a computer can do. And it's not something necessarily that we really should be spending a lot of time worrying about humans doing. I mean, we want to help students be able to do things that machines can't do. And it's that double entendre, I think, in the phrase teaching machine, right? So teaching machine is about automating assessment, but it's also this kind of way of thinking about students that also turn them into the sort of mechanized, their work into this mechanized, rote, automated work as well, rather than engaging with them and that, hum and that human capacity to do interesting work. And I think all students are capable of that. Mm. There, I, I mentioned to you, I think what's been really good, healthy wrestling for me around personalized learning. And it's been really fun to engage with you on a one way, mostly. <laughs> um, I, I like I like to wrestle with you in my imagination. You know, it helps me learn better about the things that you're advocating for. I've been also able to hear you speak. You were on a panel with Jesse Stommel, by the way, who's been really instrumental in my life, having me think about if I'm ever going to grumble about grading. Perhaps I could think about what it is I'm assigning, and that's been transformative to me. I get such a delight. I have more fun grading these days. <laughs> I mean, because if you're going to assign meaningful things, it's amazing how fun it is to see the things that people will come up with. But So one other area of wrestling, I'm not even willing to admit that I used to listen to this talk show host who at the time I felt like spoke some wisdom into my life, and I'm not even willing to mention her name. I don't even know if she's still on the radio or even if radio still exists. But anyway, she used to have this whole theory that in certain times of my life has been helpful to me. There's a lot of garbage she shared, but there is one thing that's been helpful, and it has to do with behaviorism. And the way that she would share it at the time would be example like, someone would be getting so mad that their spouse would leave the laundry on the ground. And you, you could spend all your time being angry that your spouse left it on the ground, or you could just put it in the receptacle wherever it goes and kind of get over yourself. So kind of a behaviorism, like just buck up and get over it. But uh, another similar approach was if you don't believe that you love a person anymore, act like you love a person. If you behave in a loving way, that loving feelings can come. And at certain parts of my life, I think it's, I don't think we should put this in a dualistic way, but at certain parts of my life, I think, you know what, behaviorism has been helpful. If I don't feel like going for a walk, but I go for a walk anyway, I literally have never been, dang it, why did you go for that walk? You know. So back to, I guess, our dog training things, like how much do we want to separate ourselves as learners and as human beings for what drives us? I don't think we want to go never use behaviorism, but there certainly are some cautionary notes we should take away from treating all of humans like we're just going to punch in the right code. So I don't know if any of this resonates with you. And if you'd like to talk to us about love or anything <laughs> or laundry. So, and, you know, I think that one of the things that's important to recognize, too, is that I think that we often act as though some of these ideas like behaviorism are only in the past and mm. we've moved on from that, right? But we don't do behaviorism anymore. We do cognitive science, right? Um, but I think that behaviorism is, is really powerful and behaviorism is, I think, in so many ways, still the predominant way in which we think about teaching and learning. I am not sure we would admit it. I'm not sure. I think that probably educational psychologists would be like, no way. 
no way at all we, we are beyond that. But I do think it's really, it is incredibly powerful. And it's powerful in some ways because it does work asterisks in some cases under certain circumstances and you know but i think that it, that this idea of the positive the positive behavioral reinforcement was a powerful insight that skinner made and i think that there are reasons why that is how we train our dogs now i think that that's really how we train a dog how we train a pigeon is a very different question philosophically scientifically politically socially culturally etc than what we want for children, right? You know, Skinner, I think, particularly towards the end of his life, was um, re was really famous for his arguments that there that there was no such idea as freedom. He really argued that we could we could if we would just hand over the shaping of society to engineers, to social engineers, but technologically, um, you know, he was very interested in this in the technology of of psychology. We could hand over the world to engineers we would be in a much better place. And I think people pushed back and rightly so. And I think we hear that today, you know, you hear that from a lot of these Silicon Valley types who are convinced that the key to making the world a better place is through the kinds of benevolent engineering that they have in mind. I mean, I bless his heart. I think that this is really Mark Zuckerberg's vision. I mean, he sees himself as being a person who, <laughs> just like the obvious evidence to the contrary, he sees himself, he sees his work at Facebook, he sees his, his investments as the way in which we can better engineer the world. But I think that this, is the, I do think that behaviorism is incredibly powerful. I think that we just have to recognize that because it's powerful, we do have to pay attention to power, right? We do have to pay attention to the, the people who are claiming that they're going to engineer this future for us and ask a lot of questions about how exactly do they recognize agency? what you know because if someone is planning on engineering things for you they have a certain way that they plan for you to move quite literally physically through the world and so these are deeply political questions that i hope that we can always you know ask about and certainly when it comes to education technology if we have a group of people you know ed tech entrepreneurs who are claiming that they're going to be able to engineer software that assures that students graduate, that assures that students perform at a certain level, X, Y, Z, you know, fill in the blank. We have to ask questions about what does that mean for agency? What does that look like politically? What does that look like culturally? And I think, you know, really dial into what their plans are. What, what are they talking about when they, with their vision for this engineer mechanized future? You end the book in what I described in my chicken scratch notes as hope and despair. And I don't know if you meant to be funny, but I'm, I interpreted it as funny. I'm just going to read to you and then you, you can kind of let me know if, if there was any, um, any, any snark that was in there that I didn't just put in myself. So you talk about the importance of education as a civic responsibility. And you write, uh, you write with a little bit of humorous hope, at least to me, education, you're very serious in the first part, sorry, education is a civic responsibility. And even when certain actors seem powerful in their desire to build their machinery of education, they are, as this book has hopefully shown, as likely to bumble their visions as capitalize on them. Did you mean to be snarky, funny to me? Um, and then did you mean to leave us with some hope there? No, I think hope is so important to me, this idea of hope. I mean, and I, I think it is actually 
tied into this idea that, you know, that I talk about in the book, and I draw a lot from Rebecca Solnit's um, Hope in the Dark book here, this idea that, you know, people tell you the history, when they, people tell you a history, or when, when they people try to erase history, they do that to foreclose hope. And I think that we have to, if we have a better understanding of the history of education technology, there's hope because the technologists, as I think I show in the book, they are not these sort of geniuses in terms of both the science, the technology, but also in terms of their ability to make these things work as a business. Um, they are deeply flawed individuals. And so I think that there is hope against this notion that the future is inevitably technological. I just don't think that's true. And history has shown us again and again and again that that's not the case. And I, you know, this is also, you know, not to, to Gramsci, right, who talks about, you know, was it, I am a pessimist because of a, a reality, but I am an optimist because of will. This idea that, you know, I think that politically, we do have to believe in building a better future. And I think that that is possible. And I don't think, I don't think that the future is already written. I don't think that it's inevitable, you know, even in the face of the pandemic, right? Even the face of the ways in which technology has further encroached into our lives, into our schools, into our, you know, into our personal lives, into our, literally into our homes. I don't think it's inevitable that things um, move in a direction that are increasingly exploitative, um, that are increasingly extractive. I think we can resist. I think people do resist. People always have resisted. We should know that. We should embrace that and know that, you know, this future that people try to sell us on that is necessarily more technological, that is not the future. We should have hope and we should know that it is possible. It's necessary that we resist. Before we get to the recommendation segment, I just wanted to take a moment and thank today's sponsor, and that is Text Expander. Uh, if you've been listening to the show for a while, you already know that Text Expander is one of the first things that I install on a new computer because it saves me so much time. And while I do is I can program what are called snippets, little easy to remember text segments like T-I-H-E, and that expands out to teaching in higher ed. And it's really easy to set those up and it help, it's helpful in terms of for things that I might forget, like my work phone number, or for longer types of text, like writing a letter of recommendation, where the key information I need to include goes in there automatically, and then I can invest the time with the rich customized writing that I want to do or that type of a thing. So I'd like to thank Text Expander once again for being the longest sponsor of Teaching in Higher Ed. And if you head on over to textexpander.com slash podcast. You can find out about a special offer to try it out and to receive a discount on your subscription. Thanks once again to Text Expander for sponsoring today's episode. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations and probably to no one listening surprise, I'd like to recommend your book. I've only been able to just skim the surface and I'm so honored that you would come and join me for today's conversation. And to the part that we were just talking about that I couldn't, I just couldn't even do justice to, it is absolutely a delight to read through all of the, I, I mean, I had no idea, Audrey. I've read your columns and stuff, but you really do such a deep um, look at these things. Just the, 
all the times when they're trying to go back and forth with the contracts and trying to get it sold and trying to get it made. There's a lot of bumbling that made for such a delightful read. It's very accessible. It's very approachable. Candidly, Audrey, did I want to read a book about educational history, technology? Is that like where... I, I love being in the future. It's like both my strength and a weakness. And I loved every page. I mean, I did, it was not a laborious thing. It was, it was, it's a generous, approachable. I, even I found it funny. I don't think you were trying always to be funny, but it's just funny to watch the bumbling, you know, and the, the ways that you uncovered stuff. I wish we had had more time today to talk about your work with the archives, because I'm sure you have tons of stories that only got touched on in the acknowledgments. And um, I didn't even know about the eBay thing either. So I really recommend your book. And also, I want to recommend on another end of things, and then I'll pass it over to you after this. But Audrey wrote a wonderful post called This Year, and she blogs. And if you don't subscribe to her blog, I really highly suggest that. And she begins the post by quoting the Mountain Goats, a a musical group. She says, or they say, sing, I'm going to make it through this year if it kills me. And I'm just going to read a few sentences. She says, this was a big year. I turned 50, which, by the way, I turned 50 last year, too. So I kind of thought we shared that. I didn't know we shared a birthday year. My book, Teaching Machines, was finally published. I celebrated both events, sort of, but not really. And that's fine because the pandemic raged on and Ken and I mostly stayed home. Everything has changed. And I I go from reading Teaching Machines, which, as I said, is a very accessible read, but it's very well researched. I mean, I'm hearing from the researcher. I'm hearing more from the cognitive side of you in that book, because that's the type of book that it is. This post is just so generous. And I wept with you. And I'm not going to go into all the things that you share. But I'm just going to really recommend that people go and read that post. I'm going to recommend you read the book, but also that you read the post and read Audrey's work. You're so willing to be vulnerable and share about the devastation that's happened in your life. And um, just this last week, I sent out a post to colleagues with uh, the, the the name of a poem co- is called A Blessing for People Who Are Exhausted. And I've heard from more people who just said, I needed to read that. Thank you. And I feel like so many of us need to read your post and read your work and see that more vulnerable side of you whose heart is breaking and broken, but is also full of hope. So thank you again for both of these pieces of work that are just part of your broader, um, what you generously give to the world. So thank you for that. And it's your turn now. <laughs> you know, this is a, this was a really tough question for me. I was actually talking with Ken about this before, well, you know, before I got on, because on one hand, it's easy to just like, I've read a lot of science fiction lately. I've been working my way through reading all of the winners of Hugo Awards that were written asterisks by women. Um, so I've read a ton of great science fiction lately. I could like, just pick a book just pick a book and recommend a book and be done with it. But the way my brain works and I just go down this rabbit hole of ideas. And I have been thinking a lot lately at that post that you talked about, um, that you referenced talks about this. I've been thinking a lot lately about the technologies of wellness and it's actually kind of connected to ed tech in the way that it's this weird sort of pseudoscience, but not really like pseudoscience and lots of sort of ideas about how to be like the ways in which we're sort of told by technologists in order to be a healthy person. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about that lately. And I think it connects a lot to social emotional learning in in education, another one of these buzz phrases that, that we hear about. But my recommendation is really to eat breakfast, right? It's a, it's, it's, 
I've been thinking about how breakfast is such an interesting cultural practice. I've been thinking a lot about the history of the breakfast cereal, which is tied up in religion and morality and judgment about the body in weird kinds of ways. Right, Kellogg ran a sanitarium that Post um, was a patient at. You know, Post created grape nuts in 1898. Kellogg came out with cornflakes in 1906. The the Quaker Oats first appeared after the World's Fair in 1904. We have these technologies around cereal and practices around cereal that are so caught up in these weird ideas. And then, of course, I live in Oakland, the home of the Black Panthers. And the breakfast program, the free breakfast program, was a cornerstone practice that the Panthers created in order to make sure that the children in the community were fed because the federal programs for feeding school lunches were not adequate. And so this idea of, you know, this idea of breakfast is so, has such rich ideas. And I just want to encourage people just to think, you know, to think about those kinds of practices, but to eat breakfast. I'm again, fascinated by, see, I told you rabbit hole. <laughs> this idea that technologists are now spouting about intermittent fasting, which is this whole celebrity idea of not eating, but you know, you eat for only, you can only eat for 16 hours a day and then you fast for eight. So it's really just a fancy way of saying, I don't eat breakfast, but I think you should eat breakfast. I think you should think about breakfast and think about the, the cultural history, the practices of breakfast and why it matters. So that's my recommendation. Eat a good breakfast. I not only love this recommendation, but also getting a glimpse inside your mind, in addition to all the other times yeah. I get to do that. <laughs> you mentioned recently that you're going to be doing some, you're, you've, well, actually, I guess, I guess you probably mentioned it in the post that I already recommended, but you were talking about wanting to be healing and gentle with yourself and in terms of the types of work that you're going to be doing and writing. And you said you were going to be doing some research on I don't know if it's bells in general or specifically school bells, it sounded yeah. like. School bells. It's another one of those narratives. I think it's actually part of Saul Khan's story that he often tells is that the reason that schools look a certain way because it's all about training students to be factory workers and that students are taught to move via the bell because somehow that's how factory workers were. Anyway, it's part of this larger narrative that people tell that schools are about compliance and conformity because of this technology, the school bell. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the school bell, which is not the history of training students to be factory workers, but that should be coming out in a week or two. Oh, wow. I didn't know it was going to be so soon. So maybe yeah. even maybe even as they're hearing this, I'll go back and add the link. And if yes. there's something for yes. people to access, I'll go do that after the fact. So, well, that's wonderful. Well, Audrey Waters, thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation. And again, I just feel like this has been ongoing. I'm so glad to have been introduced. This was great. To Please you. have me back again so we can chat more. Oh, I love this. oh I'm so glad. Then I'll feel more comfortable because I, you know, <laughs> I waited a long time. I felt like I had to save it up. But no, I definitely will. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you once again to Audrey Waters for joining me for today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you'd like to see the show notes for today's episode, you can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 397. And if you prefer to receive those in your inbox every week, you can head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. That will sign you up for the weekly newsletter and you will receive 
an update from me with the show notes from the most recent episode, some other resources that don't show up in the recommendations, quotable words, and other resources for you. Head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And thanks once again for being a part of the Teaching in Higher Ed community. I'll see you next time.